0: Welcome to the 25th episode of the No Degree Podcast. He's your host, Junaid Iqbal, and today's guest is Martin Pratt. Martin is many things. He's a journalist, a mentor to youth, and a marketer. He has a very diverse career that started in IT. Learn how Martin progressed through his career and the values and lessons that make him who he is today. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash nodegree. Every contribution is appreciated. This show is impossible without you. Let's get this show started. Welcome to another episode of the No Degree Podcast. Today, we have Martin Pratt, and I'll let you do the introduction.
1: Sure. Hi, I'm Martin Pratt. I'm the co-founder of a bunch of different businesses, particularly the one that I use most frequently is Unidad Media Group, U-N-I-D-A-D, and it stands for Unity Media Group. I co-founded that with my wife. I also i um, part of a couple of partnerships. One is partnership for a site we just launched called phillyabovecovid.org. And I partner with uh, Ross Johnson, who is the uh, founder of Allegory Studios, which is a brand studio, brand content studio in D.C. I'm in Philadelphia. I am a fellow of Pointer Institute, Pointer, and the uh, Charles Koch Institute. Have founded a press early career journalism media fellowship It's kind of a long long term but basically, what it is is that they help you for your first for the first year that you're with them they help you get paid one but two, they actually mentor you, introduce you to other journalists who have well established careers like nbc cNN daily Beast from a high level You get a grounding into the industry. And then from a grassroots level, you get a lot of, a lot of, we have workshops. Um, We finished our fellowship officially on May 7th. And obviously, as we're through uh, Corona, we're not going to have our ending session. uh, We're going to have it in person. We're going to have it online. But this has been a year and every week for about three hours, once a week, we would have a workshop, a pretty intensive workshop on either writing. Uh, videography. So that was a really a really great blessing. I started it in 2019. At the same time, I'm part of something called Solutions Journalism Network. So as we call it, SOJO, which is really around, I call it the uh, new language for a new operating system for journalism. And the reason why I call it that is because everything you do is under the lens of what's the solution? Not what the story is, not what's the headline, which I click on, but you looking into a story specifically to find where there's a solution. Is that solution applicable across the country or in different, different situations? Because we are also in 166 countries. So solutions journalistic, solutions journalism or solutions journalist are looking around the globe for solutions and reporting only on solutions, not on, I call it non-triggering news. Because a lot of news, especially today, will make you depressed, uh, will trigger you know, all kind of traumatic moments for a lot of people. And then it's on to the next headline and on to the next headline and on to the next headline. And I think that's going to be an outdated way of doing news because the amount of stories that has been kind of coming since 2015 is at this rapid pace that I think the mental and the emotional spirit can't handle this. It's just too much, without any positivity or without any real dissecting, and as we like to say, nuance. It's just headline, horrible, horrific thing. next headline, next horrible, horrific thing. So that's what attracted me to solutions journalism, and I'm a fellow there for this year. And again, we meet once, well, within we meet once a month, and we have less of a workshop and more of a discussion about what's happening and and how we can report on it differently. And then I just became, I just graduated from the Young Turks Video Academy, YouTube Academy. And Young Turks have been founded about 15 years on YouTube. Uh, They have over 4 billion views, and they have 4.6 million subscribers. YouTube and young Turks decided they wanted to help local journalists like me to develop their own YouTube channels and develop a platform that could be distributed across all social media. so they work with you on creating your YouTube platform and then they help you nuance it to um Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and they don't have LinkedIn, so I'll be one of the first people they will work with who has a i have a pretty well established LinkedIn platform. And um, a blessing to to have that ability to be one of the first people to use uh, LinkedIn Live and one of the beta testers for that. Hopefully, I'll be able to do the same thing I do on every other platform on LinkedIn. We'll see.
0: I think you'll be able to do it. You're involved in a lot of activities. So let's sort of go back to the beginning, right? Like high school. Did you always see yourself? And what did you want to become in high school?
1: I was uh, raised a Jehovah's Witness. So kind of like Prince or... Terrence Howard or uh, any other folks, uh, Jill Scott. And because of the religion and the religious way that the religion tells, especially in the early 70s, that college was not something that they that they looked at. Or uh, it was, you're going get, to get a um, high school diploma, and you're going to get a job, and you're going to go preach. And that was pretty much, that was my options. Fortunately, my mother homeschooled me Until I was six years old, and when I I lived in New Jersey, and at that time in um, '77, they were testing kids to make sure they placed them in the right grade. So when I got to elementary school, I was put into the second grade. So I was the smallest kid, and sometimes sometimes the smartest kid in the classroom. So when I got to middle school, we had moved from Orange, New Jersey, to East Orange. I went to a Middle school with Queen Latifah. It was sixth and seventh and eighth grade. She was an eighth grader and I was a sixth grader. I'm sorry, seventh grader. And um, again, everybody's kind of like getting to their teen years and I'm still like 12, you know, or whatever I was, 11. So I was the shortest kid, again, uh, smallest kid. And at that time in East Orange, this was when hip hop was really starting to come up. And so your question was, what did I want to be? Because I was raised in that religion and I was living through hip hop, the start of hip hop. There also was, at the same time hip hop was starting, there was this thing called the computer, the personal computer I was starting. And I was uh, attracted to, I've always been attracted to science. What year was
0: this? If you don't, what year was this? A mind? Around? I got to high school in 84.
1: So in 82.
0: Okay, so mid
1: early to mid eighties. Yeah, early eighties. They we had this store called Fortune Off. It was a real like a jury high end jewelry store, fashion, home homeware stuff. But then they had this weird electronics department. And they were the only store in New Jersey that had this thing called the Commodore Pet P E T. And I guess it was supposed to be for personal electronics whatever, I don't know, a pet stood for it. But it had a little tiny monitor like this <laughs> and a big computer. And so I went to look at it with my dad and he was like, why do you want this? This, looks, this is like, I don't understand what this is. And so after that, Commodore 64 came out. And I was like, he was like, okay, I can understand that because this is going to attach to the TV. This is like a game. Instead of the games, this is actually going to you're going to be able to do something. It had, a, it had a floppy drive so I could store information. He understood that because he, he had his own business. Let me back up a little bit. My father was always a business entrepreneur. And about junior high school, he switched from being an entrepreneur to working for corporate America. And a couple of funny things about my father. My father was the type of person. He grew up in Newark, New Jersey, on one of the roughest streets in Newark called Prince Street. He did have to unfortunately go to juvie, and so he went into juvenile detention center. In that scenario, he decided he didn't want to go. He he wasn't a criminal. When he came out, he became a Jehovah's Witness, but he's always been a person who wanted his own business and started his own business. So he was one of the first janitorial black-owned businesses that had a contract for industrial cleaning industrial uh, sites. Unfortunately, his business partner left him. So sort of my lens when it comes to entrepreneurship is I did grow up with a father who was strictly business and then he switched to corporate America because my mom had tw- him and my mom had my brothers and they were twins. So he needed really good health care. And back then you had really good healthcare If you worked for certain companies, he was a manager at New Jersey Bell. So the, the telephone companies were kind of regional. You know, and they were actually state New York Bell, New Jersey Bell, Bell Atlantic. Anyway, what he did do on the weekends is he did thrift shops and antique stores. He went into flea market business and he would find stuff at thrift shops and sell it on Canal Street. Canal Street used to have something called the Canal Street in New York flea market. In New Jersey, there's a big flea market still called English Town Flea Market. It's huge. And so it's kind of like a swap meet for people on the West Coast. But it was high-end stuff. And so we would go to estate sales. We would also scour the trash on trash night in the wealthy neighborhoods in Jersey. And we would find chairs and desks and furniture. And we would refurbish that and take it to Canal Street and sell it for, you know, two, three, four hundred dollars. So I would see my dad in the weekend make $5,000 or I would see him make, you know, and that would go to, it was three kids, that would go to us, that's how he paid our bills, but also him and my mom were savers. They really saved. I had to cut coupons every week. My job in the family was to cut coupons. Going back to your question, I didn't know that I wanted to do business, but I was influenced by how I saw my dad constantly take and do his own stuff. I never got the concept that I had to go to college. One, the religion was like against it at that time. And then two, I actually went from middle school, I went to a vocational high school called Essence County Vocational and Technical Career Center. And it was right up from Essence County Community College on uh, West Market Street in Newark. They had a program where you could work a week and go to school a week. So that's why I went there. I went there as soon as I was going to be a sophomore, I was going to get my job. And by the time I graduated uh, senior year, I would have a full-time job and I would be set. It did work out that way, sort of. <laughs> it didn't totally. Computers came out. So it's 84. I'm in high school. The IBM PC came out. That, and then the IBM PC XT and AT. The AT was the first computer with a hard drive. We had brand new IBM ATs in this school, downtown Newark. I don't know, this is a common thread through my life. I don't know that people notice things, but I definitely try to help people see what's a theme through their life. I just happen to constantly be in the right place at the right time. Here was a school in Newark that only had 200 kids for high school. When it's three o'clock came, that high school turned into an adult school. That school got really good stuff. Because the adults were paying the county to go to that school like you would uh, like ITT or DeVry. But the high school students benefited from having the best equipment on the freaking planet. And it was like you could go from there and go right into whatever career you were in because you had you were at the level of an adult and you were you were getting that for three years. So when the computer course came, I jumped on it. And a guy from the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, which is the agency that handles the tunnels, the bridges, the airports. He was a Hispanic brother, and he was the first Hispanic to be in the C-suite of the Port Authority. He handled what's called financial planning. So the gate fees for the airlines, the tunnels and bridges, the collections, he was in charge of planning all of their stuff for every tunnel, for every bridge, for every airport, LaGuardia, Teterboro, JFK, and Newark. He came into the high school and said, I need somebody that can teach me, him, how to transfer from dumb terminal, which was what they used to use back then, the mainframe computer, your terminal that you typed on had no hard drive. It was what's called a dumb terminal. It just reacted to the mainframe. So the mainframes would get hot and the system would crash. And then your department was just sitting there for hours waiting for IT to reboot the mainframe." So when PCs came out, that meant that, oh, we can work full time. We can be independent of the actual internal network. Mr. Diaz came and, and the only person who was interested in working in the computer course was me. Because everybody else was not really, they weren't there to really get a job. I was there to get a job. <laughs> like That was my whole goal of high school. I'm going to work. And so he's like, you know, we have a program like you to come and try out. So I came for a week. They liked me. I dressed in a suit and tie. Kids in my school started calling me Wall Street because I, I got the Wall Street Journal and I read constantly the Wall Street Journal. So that's how I started in working in technology. And he sent me to IBM to learn how to network every location's IBM computer to that location. So they could speak to all departments, could speak to each other. So the financial planning at Teterboro, and I had to go to every airport and, and every tunnel and bridge location and actually set up, a, set up one IBM AT computer. Their IT department knew how they had this, back then it was networking through a microwave. So they would send the data over microwave. I didn't know how, again, didn't see the thread, didn't have any context or nuance to know. You are on you know, the cutting edge of technology. What I did learn through that process was that everybody, when they heard there was a kid who knew computers and that computer program, because back then we didn't have Word, we didn't have Excel or Access, we had something called SuperCalc One Two Three, we had something called DBase Plus, and then we had something called WordStar Two Thousand. That was before WordPerfect. But these programs would sit in a computer. And then you could actually print to a, a dot matrix printer, and back then it was Okidata was the best printer. So I was teaching CPAs who normally worked on wrote stuff down and wrote it down and put it in a ledger. I was teaching them that you could put it on the screen and the spreadsheet could add things up. They, I was like this wizard. It was magical, you know. I was two years ahead, so I was only I was working full time at 15 years old. I at mean, 14. I graduated high school at 16. So I was a kid, but I was wearing a suit and tie. I had a briefcase. And I read the Wall Street Journal. And I had been reading the Wall Street Journal since I was 10. So I could talk to adults, and I could talk about exactly what was happening in the economy at that moment and how it affected the transportation industry. So I wasn't just somebody who was just there to fix their computer. I understood the context, the surrounding of why they needed this information and what was important about printing out this information and how it affected the transportation between the two states. So it was a really interesting position. And after that, when I got out of high school, they offered me a full-time job at uh, 45000 And I turned it down. And I worked for a publishing company. My next job was at a publishing company. And the reason why I turned it down was I realized that I was never going to really rise up in a company without a college degree. You could take these different civil servant tests that they had internally and you could get to a certain level, but you were only gonna to get to a certain level without a college degree. Now, if you had a college degree, you could make a hundred and twenty thousand back in it in eighty four there. And forty five thousand was a lot. Yes, then. it was. It definitely was. But that meant when I was twenty or when I was twenty two, I would still be making the most I could have made without a high school diploma there was probably about fifty. I would have to be a library clerk. I actually went to they actually had me go talk to a woman who was this senior level library clerk. So she was in charge of computer disk and the library of data. And that was a boring job. That was just like, it's not dealing with people. It was in this mainframe area. And I was like, no, nah, I can't do that. So to me, there was the dead end situation. And my parents were like, you turned down 45, you know, they were like, what are you crazy? I got out of high school when I was 16, but I turned 17 and my birthday's in July. So I did turn 17 after leaving high school. And I goofed off a little bit because I had money because I've been working for two years. And my parents started charging me rent. So I knew I had to find a job because they were charging me market rent. In my one room, they were charging me like 300 bucks. I found a publishing company. And my parents were like, we're moving out of where we lived at, North Jersey, to South Jersey. So it's a really nice place. My dad also, he, uh, he did real estate too. So he flipped houses on his own. Back then, there was a guy called Sonny Block. And he came on AM radio. And he taught you how from AM radio, he spoke for eight hours a day, almost. And Saturdays, he had it all day. He did 12 hours on Saturdays. So you could call into the show, stay on the phone with him for an hour, work out your problems, and got off the phone. you were like, okay, I'm going to bank Monday. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. So my dad would buy houses in Virginia Beach, South Jersey. The house that they moved to, my father got it on foreclosure. And it was worth a hundred and he got it for like about 10 and it had a pool. It was on the country club course, the golf course. The golfers would hit balls over into our yard and my brothers would started collecting balls and they started selling them back to the golfers. We're down in South Jersey. I'm not near New York anymore. and I'm feeling like I'm closed in. And then my parents are like, you got to come in at 10. And I was like, 10? I'm like, I'm paying rent here. <laughs> like, like and I was trying to get a job in Philly. I actually got a job. first, My first job in, in down there was uh, at Graduate Hospital. I just couldn't do with the curfew. So I said, I'm leaving. I'm going to Brooklyn. And they're like, what? Who you know in Brooklyn? I was like, I found a roommate. And I found a roommate, and I worked for a publishing company for two years before I started working at World Trade Center. After working at World Trade Center, I worked for a law firm. Again, no college degree. I was what's called a network administrator. So they had a network of 15 computers. They were all networked through Novell software. I ran the network. But lawyers, and this is the thing about the 80s, everybody discounted techies. We weren't the techies of today. So the lawyers always asked me if there was anybody else to do something. They would ask me, hey, Mark, can you run down? We got to go to court. Can you get um, our dry cleaner? So I was doing network stuff. Fixing hard drives or network cards or I was actually creating a new land, a new network, a local area network for them. And I was picking up their dry cleaning. And if a client was coming by and, and they wanted a special lunch or whatever, I was a guy that went to Devin Blakely and go got their special lunch. So I wasn't happy. I was making decent money, but I wasn't happy. And I had benefits. But it was also one of the cool things was it was in the World Trade Center, 70, 72nd floor. It was, you know, every day I walked to the World Trade Center. And back then, in the middle of the World Trade Center was a courtyard. And in the summertime, there was all these concerts. So you could be on the 77th floor or 72nd floor and hear Bill Withers or, or what Jill Scott wasn't, but like a Jill Scott type of concert for free. And they did it for free down there, but you didn't have to be down with the peon, so to speak. You could be in your office looking out in the courtyard and seeing all So it was some. You know, accolades. But after a while, after six months of that, I got tired of that. So I started looking around. And I found my first real job where I was a network administrator for 120 computers. And that paid double what I was making, basically. Uh, plus with four weeks benefit, four weeks off and full benefit. Do you mind sharing how much that yeah. was? I was making at the uh, law firm, I was making 28. The first year was like 50, but there was a, a signing bonus and if I contributed, because it was a nonprofit foundation, I worked for it. It was funded for the from the Ford Foundation, but it wasn't part of the Ford Foundation. It was called Fund for the City of New York. And it's right, it's still there it's on 6th Avenue, uh, Avenue of the Americas, right up from um, Canal Street. My transition was rough because the law firm didn't want to let me go. So they brought me in as senior partner. And I say this in context just to give people the name of the law firm at the time, I don't think it's gone but uh it's called circle and simon so mr circle lived in long island and had a ranch everything in his office was about horses so mr circle the senior partner of the law firm called me into his office imagine a guy who kind of looks like donald trump but half the size that was mr circle so he goes march My wife tells me you're going to leave us. You know, he's got the big corner office. He's facing Broadway. You look out his window, you see the whole entire Broadway. Beautiful, spectacular view. But it's this little guy at this desk, this huge desk, and really all you see is his head. So I'm sitting there like, and he has those chairs where you sit down, you're like this low, and he's like super high, and you're like, you know, so you're trying to constantly sit up. Anyway, Mr. Serco goes, we can match whatever you found. I'm like, oh. Hmm. Kind of had my heart set on leaving, but, you know, okay. So I told him how much I was making. He's like, you're making what? you what? Again, people didn't respect computer people back then. He was like, yeah, we can match that. But, here's the but. And here's how people treat you with no degree. You can match that. I just need you to double your hours. And that's done a lot in law firms. I mean, not so much today because of me too. And, you know, we have a lot more... People are afraid today. You know, corporations are afraid. They're not like they used to be. You know, it wasn't just me they treated it that way. It treated the secretaries, the paralegals. They build a the client for a hundred hours that you did. They wanted to build a client eighty hours, the forty more hours. You know, they wanted me to work eighty to make my extra twenty eight. And I was like, that's just me working. What?
0: Yeah, that don't make sense.
1: Right. And so I said no. He's like, no. I said, yes, Mister Circle. I'm. I'm pretty much not happy here, and I'm pretty much decided to leave. I just put it point blank. So his wife asked me for an exit interview, and she said, I need you to tell me. Now, she looked like Judge Judy. He was Donald Trump, and she was Judge Judy. They're both the same height, 4'11", and these little people who are really outside, huge ego, huge conversationalists. So she was like, I need you to tell me what's going on. Why are you leaving us? I ran it down. You're abusive. You're not willing to pay me what I'm worth. I'm the only black guy here. You have me doing mail. The mailroom guy was like, I don't know, 70. So he wouldn't come in half the time. And if he didn't come in, they expected me to sort mail. And I was like, I actually have been trained by IBM. Like HP, I'm an HP certified technician. You know, back then it was a big thing with HP laser jets. Picking up your laundry. Going, she said, well, what if, we, what if we stop all that? You don't have to pick up laundry. You don't have to do dry cleaning. You don't even have to do the mail. Like it was a big thing. You don't even have to do the mail. I think like, it wasn't hard to do the mail. That was not in the job. This is my original job. The description you had in, in, in New York Times the classified. I always kept people's job listings that I didn't know it, but back then, but, but that's how you can, you know, say, look, that wasn't part of the deal. She, she smirked at me because she's like, Oh, he's smart. He's one of those smart guys. Okay. She's like, well, tell us what we could do better. And I was like, be transparent about what you really want. And so we left on decent terms and the, the firm shut down, thank God, before 9 11. I say thank God because I, I did like a lot of people that worked there. Mr. Simon, who was a younger partner, he was cool. He understood. And he didn't even, he was like, he actually gave me a going away gift of a briefcase and stuff. He was not like the other, the other older partners. Anywho, got to the, the, the next job. And killed that job. That job was thebomb.com. Had a great boss. It was a very progressive place. So we worked with God's Love We Deliver, which had been started by uh, David Geffen and the Geffen Foundation. They were right up the street on Sixth. I didn't realize it, but man, I moved from like Wall Street area to and World Trade Center to Tribeca and Soho, and I was like, but I didn't, I didn't, I was a kid, I didn't really understand the significance of what I was, you know, where I was getting at, but gay men's health crisis was just starting up, and that was really one of the first forward-thinking foundations to help the gay community deal with the ravages of AIDS and HIV, so I felt really blessed to be in the mix on a nonprofit side and we didn't just deal with a uh, small nonprofit did large nonprofits and we also dealt with community based nonprofits so i went around the city helping people with their computers or i mean from a i maintained an internal network and then any nonprofit that was funded by the fund i actually helped them set up their local area and this is this was uh, la 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 want to say like 92 93 so local area networks were starting to people were starting to understand if I have five computers, they have to be networked, and we can share a printer, and we can share email. And then then was when the dot-com started coming. At home, still living in Brooklyn, I actually was the person that ran the, the Internet side of the first African-American Internet Cafe. That was founded by Spike Lee. Again, I'm with Queen Latifah. Dana and her mom were investors. Uh, Tracy Chapman was an investor and is an author, famous author, called Alice Walker. Her daughter, Rebecca, and her girlfriend at the time, Angel, were the proprietor, proprietors of Coco Bar. So if you Google the word K.O.K.O. Bar, this was in Fort Greene. At that time, also what was happening in Fort Greene was poetry. So Jessica Caremore, Saul Williams, all these giants in black poetry now was really coming up and living in Fort Greene. And we had this Wendell Pearson, the actor, What, well not Pearson, Pierce. Of course, Spike Lee's office was around the corner. He also had Spike Lee's joint, that store was right there. And I lived on what's called Fort Greene Place. So I lived around the corner, still working, but when I came home, I hung out, and I ran an internet cafe, uh, the internet side. So, And at that time, that cafe was spending $600 a month on something called T1.
0: Oh, I remember T1. It was
1: expensive and and it was way overkill. But what had happened was there was a guy who was setting up something called New York Online and he would come into the cafe and do work on the computers because we had a faster connection than he had at home because he only had a 56k dial up. He was building a bulletin board service that was graphical. So it was actually a graphic interface on a bulletin board service. Well, that bulletin board service and that guy turned into what's called Black Planet. And Black Planet was the, the first social networking site in the U.S. And so African American people, and then next came something called Magenta or Magenta, depending on how, how you pronounce it. M-I-G-E-N-T-E. That site and Black Planet were the first social networking sites. We had direct messaging in 96 and 97. So this stuff today, this is not anything new. In fact, Black Planet had the first site to have a million subscribers. Anyway, working with Omar and getting into the, now I'm getting into the dot-com and kind of the creatives. In that space was something called New York NIMA, New York New Media Association. And NIMA, again, no college degree, but NIMA, I was at the first NIMA meeting at 55 Broad which was the first building to have T1 connection fiber through the entire building. So at 55 Broad was where all the dot-coms were at in New York at that time. NIMA first meeting, we said, what are we going to call ourselves as a community? And at that meeting was Silicon Alley. My point in saying all this is that I didn't decide to do anything. I just decided I wanted a job. That was the original question. And in deciding to want a job, And that's what I needed to pursue. It just so happened that computers opened up. I grabbed a hold of that and ran with it.
0: No, I mean, it seems like those things led you to great places. One thing that I kind of see is that you always were doing stuff outside, right? That you were reading, right? Especially from a young age that you didn't just take the job. You made sure, hey, I'm going to do what I need to do outside, that I'm going to do what's right for me that and you were forward thinking cuz you denied that 45k job because you're like look they're going to put this glass ceiling on me so I can't limit em. I may get paid 50% more right now but I'm limiting myself in the future where do you think you got that
1: um I think that it's a generational thing I think one of the things I did want to touch on when we got to these questions was the difference in generation I've observed something. So there's a three-year-old last year. These are all last year numbers. So these kids are older, one year older now. Three-year-old doing lemonade stands so she can give diapers to homeless families. Four-year-old, he's in Alabama. She's in North Carolina. Four-year-old taking his allowance and making his father drive to Georgia to help give his allowance to homeless shelters. And he volunteers to serve food. Four years old eight-year-old here last year in Philadelphia decided that she needed to jump in the place of her brother who dropped out of barber school because her family could not afford to lose that money that they paid for her older brother in his 20s to go to barber school. She became the world's youngest barber. She stands on a milk crate and gives free haircuts on Saturdays. That generation is completely different and I the generation Z, I call them the returning generation. I believe these kids, zero to twenty two, are our great grandparents who come back. So not our grandparents, but our great grandparents, people who were around in nineteen twenties and nineteen ten. And I bring that up to answer your question because for my generation, I'm generation X. I'll be fifty this year, coming. It's a generational thing that I was influenced by the, these little kids that are here today, that I believe are great grandparents, I was influenced by my grandmother a lot. My grandmother lived with us. We had the first house we ever bought, we bought with pennies. We actually used cash. We used saving bonds and we used pennies. We actually paid the actual deposit of, I think it was $5,000. We paid some of that in $400 of pennies. My grandmother lived with us on the third floor. We had a Victorian house. We had the second floor and and the first floor and she lived on the third floor. I hung out with her a lot. And so my grandmother was that generation that she actually made wine. We had a grape, a little grapevine in the backyard. She would take the grapes every year and she would t- bring them upstairs to the third floor, smash them in the bathtub, and then use one of those tubes and suck up the the wine into the bottle, rather. And so she made her own homemade wine. That's where I think I got it from because my grandmother would always analyze. And she had a, a 1977 Buick Skylark reason why I know because that was the first car I was able to drive and that thing like drove like a tank to fill it up was uh I think it was like 40 bucks I would take half of my allowance and I would fill up the tank just because she was nice enough to let me drive it so my grandmother would then take 25 dollars and she would hire me to do things like put the wine up in the in this in the attic or whatever so she would, she would pay me back my money and with a tip with a five dollar tip but my point is that that analyzation, one is my father and making me read the Wall Street Journal. One is my mother who, who school, homeschooled me until I begged to go to school. My little brothers, she didn't, my, the twins, they didn't ask to go to school. They didn't want to go to school. So they graduated high school at 12 on homeschool. And then they went to college, homeschool again for two years when they were 14. They transferred to a four year school in person when they were 14 and they got their bachelor's at 16. So I think in our tribe, our internal tribe, we're a tribe of thinkers and we're a tribe of people who really analyze situations. But, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I'm kind of a selfish person. And if you're selfish, then you're not going to let anybody screw you over because you're selfish. Other people would say I'm self-aware. I've struggled with that back and forth because I know me. I was the only child for 10 years. So I had a, I had to have imagination. I had had cousins, but my cousins were considered kind of wild. So my mother didn't want me to go over there. My cousin, cause remember we we're Jehovah's witnesses and my cousins were, were not. And so they were worldly or they were, you know, not just, so they celebrated Christmas. Woo, woo, woo you know, but being insulated to some degree and, and by myself a lot, I had to learn who I was. And then at the same time, Man, I, I think I really love the concept of not being taken advantage of and being able to have options. I say it now a lot in my forties that you know I do, and I tell my wife all the time, we have options. A lot of people don't have options. Like you know, we like we were on a call, you and I were on a call at two o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday or something like that, whatever the day was. A lot of low folks have to get up and go go to work or school. You know, what I mean, not you know. Not now in the pandemic, but I mean, they still do. But my point is that we had the options. And out of that conversation came another business idea. Those types of situations where you have the ability to move this, move there. I've always liked that. I've never liked to be locked down into a square box. If it's a square box, it's an expandable square box. You know, I could go this way, I could go that way. It's like, oh, yes, I got room to stretch and grow, you know, versus like you're locked. I just can't. I, I'm not that type of person. But I didn't get us to be self aware. I was on the radio. Funny story. And a guy heard me on the radio. I get off the radio. This is in New York. Uh, it's a black station called uh, 1190 a WBL, WLIB, AM station. I'm thinking I'm like I'm telling black people this is the nine. This is the late 90s. Like we gotta get computers. We gotta this. The digital divide is horrible. We have to start not just uh, being able to log on at work, but we've got to log on at home. You know, net zeros around. You, there's no reason for you not to be on. You know, have a computer. I get to my office, which is at 139 Fulton Street, down the street from Wall Street, but also right across the street, diagonally da- across the street from um, the World Trade Center. And the secretary, I was sharing office space. This is no co working back then. I just happened to find a company that had extra office, and I was like. Can I um, fix your computers in exchange for getting this office? And so we did a barter deal. Anyway, secretary's there. She's like, hey, is a guy dropped off a book for you because he heard you on the radio? I was like, oh, okay, cool. This dude dropped off and bookmarked the page. The book was The Power of Positive Thinking. And his note inside the book was, young man, you are so negative. You need some positive thinking in your life. This was a guy who ran the NAACP. So at that time, the the, the NAACP national uh, state office was on Broadway, and it was not too far from Fulton Street. So he walked over from he listened to me on the radio, walked over from the office because I I've always been the other thing I always did was I always told people exact even when it, even early on in the web I always listed my address or my number or prices. I was one of the first people in New York that sold. Use computers and listed the price on Yahoo's listing. So if you Googled, uh, it was called a PC, PC Consultants of New York. And if you Googled us or went to not Google, but Yahoo does, you would see that the price right on our listing. It wasn't like in our description in meta the data, I had the price of what we charged. So everybody else was like, come find us, give us a call. It wasn't a sell, sell industry back then. It was, it was a nuanced industry where it's, it's weird and computers. And I was like, no, people want to know how much it's going to cost. And they, cause they're looking at ads in the paper for, for a cop USA or looking at, I got to compete with some big boys. So the way for me to do that was to list everything. So anyway, he knew my address because it was listed and I said it on the air and that guy became one of my first mentors, real mentors, but he gave me that book. The Power of Positive Thinking by Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. It's an excellent book. And at the time, Dr. Peale was at this church called Marble Collegiate. It's one of the very few, like, computer, not computer, but I would say Christian science churches where money, science, and forward thinking all meet. I was like, wait, this dude is in New York? I'm I'm about to go to that church. I had never heard the Bible and equated to the power of positive thinking. And that was like a deep moment for me because I knew the Bible back and forth. And I was like, man, I was never taught this. Then, come to find out, he gave me another book, Think and Grow Rich. And he gave me, it was Think and Grow Rich, and it was another book. I forget the other book. But Think and Grow Rich was in my, my library back home when I, when I was growing up. And I was like, my parents never, never taught me about Dale Carnegie and Think and Grow Rich. Those books were in my life. I grew up with those books. But I had never touched them. I was never encouraged, not to say that they didn't encourage me, but I'm saying I had access to that. But in my 20s, here's a guy, an old guy dropping off a book in my office saying, you ain't ish yet, young man. You know, you still got stuff to learn. And that really was a turning point for me in understanding I have options. Because I didn't know, I didn't think about it, but every morning when I woke up, because I was always at 10 in our family, you had to clean, you had to cook, you had to sew you had to, uh, wash dishes, wash clothes. When you became 10 years old, my mother felt you were a man and a man had responsibilities. So I always knew what I wanted to eat for breakfast because I was cooking breakfast for the family. So I woke up and I said, I want eggs. I got eggs. What I realized in, in, in the power of thinking was I would wake up and say, I want something. I go get it just like life. If I say, I want this X, Y, Z, I can say it and it can go. I, can, there is nothing stopping me from going to get it. It's just my process of thought. But I didn't get that until I was like 25. Because this guy who worked on the radio is saying, you're not positive enough. He was actually saying, you're you're so negative that you're not going to, what you want for the black community to get into computers, you're going to stop us from getting into computers because your butt is saying we're not getting into computers. And so I was like, oh, hmm. And that was a real turning point for me about the concept of options and concept of, it's up to me. It's not really... Based on my outside anything, it's it's really up to, I have to say it and I have to actually accept that I deserve to get X, Y, and Z and I get it. And that you don't get from a college. You don't get you know, from a degree.
0: What was the next step, right? You're, you're selling like PCs and stuff and...
1: Well, yeah, I had a hustle, right? So probably wasn't one of my finest hours, I'll say. I decided to leave the nonprofit, my my cushy job, four weeks, four week vacation, <laughs> We had free food, bro. We had like, and it wasn't free yucky food. It was free good. This is Tribeca. So yeah, man, I was, I was an idiot, but I decided I wanted to be a consultant and I can make just as much money getting a contract as I could. I could double what I was making at a a fund for city of New York, which was true, but I did not, I didn't realize how much I was one person and I would have these contracts for 25,000. Now, if somebody was paying you $25,097 as a contractor, they expected your butt to be there within two to three hours. And I didn't look at the expense of having to hire people to be, because I can only be in two places, you know, one or two places. I had contracts up and down Manhattan, small nonprofits, 10,000 here, 25 here. So I was making a hundred thousand, but probably my expenses were 150. I've quickly learned that I could not do contract work. I had to do, I pivoted to selling, to what you're saying, to selling computers. And actually, I, the computers I sold used computers with a brand new printer and a printer cable. So I realized that numbers wise, I can make as much money selling computers and doing, doing one off consulting, not contract, and not have to deal with a client that was expecting me to be there for, you know, basically like an employee. And they would get upset if you weren't in office and they needed to print something and, and the printer didn't work. Like I, the printer worked last yesterday. I'm not going to be, I'm not on site. Like, you know, it's not on site. That's when the on site thing came out too. Cause on site was like, yeah, I'm, we're going to contract, but we're not on site. You want on site. It's another, you know, in developing that situation and realizing that I need to sell a product in that product needs to be enough space for me to actually make a hundred bucks per sale. That was hard work because I actually delivered computers actually there was no uber and no lyft it was a shopping cart not a shopping cart but a, one of those those um i forget those carts with the two wheels on it but i had one of those and they weren't foldable back then they were just like you know this is not easy work and my vendors were guys who had the computer stores the um different uh computer resellers in new york and so i went and picked up parts and i I built a computer at my house, on my apartment, and then I dropped them off. I was probably selling from five to 10 computers a week. Looked at that. That was like about 500 a week times, times 52 weeks. So I was make, making a lot less, but I didn't have as many problems. And I had the options to do a bunch of different other projects. One of those projects I did do was starting to teach at different schools. So I taught at TCI. I taught A plus certification. So that's a quick story. I've never been certified in anything in tech. Every time I got a job, somebody said, you should be Novell certified. You should be Cisco certified. You, Martin, you should be Windows NT certified. You should be A-plus certified. And I would look at them and go, that sounds like a good idea. One question, are any of those things out when DOS was out? No, no, no. I predate all that stuff. I learned Kobo, Fortran in high school. So I predate all this stuff that's certified. Yeah, but, but this is new. I said, what's going to happen when it, when that's over the next thing? I got real close one time. I think I think it was, it was a real unique certification. I was, it was like about 3,500. And I was like, eh, I should probably get that. And I, some, something happened the day I was going to go sign up and something else happened. And literally that next year was a year when the first dot com really failed. And after that, you started to see like interest in certification go like this because People were not keeping the jobs. So being certified didn't help you get into a tech IT department. It helped you really when you're trying to convince customers they should buy something from you. So anyway, I taught A plus and in the hood at a uh, Bushwick High School after school. I taught at a high school in Harlem called Watley on a hundred and fifth hundred and thirteenth Street. I taught an adult education course after school and I taught computers there. And I taught at TCI. At TCI, they let me b- bring in old computers, and I could repair those computers. The class, I used the class as a way to fix my client's stuff or to build new computers. And one of the things, if you finish the course, I gave you a used computer. So that was unique for TCI. They didn't have anything. No one, no, other school had that where you left with the computer. Now, they start, a lot of them started after I did it. They would give new computers and I would just, I was still doing the used stuff, but it was just, you know. So they stole your idea. They stole your idea. Kind of, but it was going to that place. And the thing about industry or tech or anything is you have to keep figuring out what's the next, what's the next hook? And if you can get that next hook first or second, you're pretty good. After that, that's when I really started to say, what can we do? Or what can I do rather? That's not going to be impacted by some other force. And so my um, my cousins and I had a had a tech consulting business, and we were making seventy five dollars a call. Half of that was going to, or not half, more than half was going to the tech, and we would keep the other half. When two thousand happened, Compact Gateway, Dell all dropped their price. They were paying uh, third tier tech support. So third tier was the person you come to your house. Uh, they dropped it to twenty five a call. So we got out the business. And I took a year off, kind of goofed around. My family owns one of the oldest black bookstores in the East Coast. It's in Harlem. It's called Sisters Uptown Bookstore. That's my auntie. So I landed at the bookstore. and was like, hey, and I hung out there for a while, a little bit. And she was like, my cousin's going to college. Can you run a bookstore? I was like, oh, okay. And doing that, I was exposed to Harlem in a different way. And so there's a radio station in Harlem. And I had this idea for a radio show. as a tech talk show. And I had pitched it to a couple of stations. They said, nope, it's a dot-com bubble. Computer's going away. There was articles in New York Times about how, you know, internet was a fad. And it's, it's obviously that it's over. Y2K didn't happen. You guys don't know-ish. You got that wrong. You know, so it was just a lot of hatred when it came to uh, tech. What I had to do was figure out what radio station would want this talk show. And I had sponsors. I had money. Like, it wasn't like I came, like, uh, just put me on the air. Now I'm, I'm a good guy. Cause I didn't have any, I didn't have any journalism or any radio experience. I knew I could talk, <laughs> but I knew I held classes, you know, uh, and I knew I had history. Anyway, this out of a hundred radio stations in New York that I went and talked to and a couple online, one said yes. And it just happened to be 17 blocks from the, from the store. So I was like, okay, I'm in Harlem, I'm staying in Harlem. I started a radio show called Tech No Color Radio Show. So Tech No, N-O, Color Radio Show. First year, I was nervous. It did okay. Uh, I was Monday nights for one hour from six to seven, so rush hour, good time. And the second year, they gave me an intern, Lena. And Lena was, she was a crazy kid. She grew up in Kansas. And she was a she was like me. She was a, a Dungeon and a Dragon kid, a techie. She was on the internet when she was 10. She was, just got to college. Lena said, you need to be on this thing called Twitter. This is years after a while. I'll be on the show. And Lena stayed with me until she, we ended the show in 2016. So we were on the air for 13 years. And in that time, Lena got a master's degree. She got two jobs. She stayed on the show. And a lot of the times, I wasn't physically on the show. I mean, I wasn't physically in the studio. Lena would be in the studio. And I would call into the show. So having a partner like that really helped my career because I could still be on the air in on the air on FM radio in New York. This, that's unheard of to be able to call in from wherever you are and still do your show. It was doing that. Anyway, Lena said, you should be on this thing called Twitter. And I was like, no, nah, I'm good. You know, I'm on Facebook. We're killing on MySpace. She's like, no, no, you, you would like Twitter. You understand internet relay chat and IRC. You understand direct messaging. This is what Twitter is. So I was like, okay, what can I be on Twitter? That's my Twitter name where I don't have to do anything to get followers. So my aunt's bookstore, the book club would always accost me and say, Martin, why do black men say this? the And I'm like, I'm Martin. Whatever was in the news, the women at the bookstore, would. I had to represent all men. I said, I was going to wear a T-shirt and I, I'm on the internet. Everybody can see it on the internet. I wear a T-shirt, wore a T-shirt called I, the, the letter letter I, a heart, black women. So I said, I need to have that same name on Twitter. So I was the first person on Twitter with the word black in their name. And I had to spell love, L-U-V, because L-O-V-E was actually taken by a porn site. West Coast Productions was the first website and the first Twitter account to say that they love black women. But I'm sorry, they weren't on Twitter until a little bit later, but they were the first domain. What back in the day, I equated domain names with the Twitter name. So I wouldn't go get a Twitter name and not have the domain name. And so I couldn't get, I love black women because they had that domain, but I could have got it and spelled it differently, but I know it would equate back to their website. So I'm like, I don't know. I'm do. Because of that, I got, I gained a lot of followers and Twitter actually brought me to their first conference uh called the Conference of Characters. So I was considered a character, a 140 character. That's kind of how I became my social media and my journalism really started online, started there
0: on Twitter. You sort of used the tech to sort of slowly, kept flipping it, and it was like a slow transition. Did you ever expect to sort of be where you are today?
1: There was not a plan. I can't make it say, dude, you, the next chapter after that life... Is even crazier. This, this last four years has been unbelievable because I went from the radio show and being able to do the radio show. A guy offered me a job on Twitter. He said, I want you to open up our offices around the country. We're a media company and we want you to go around the country, open up offices. So I said, well, where's your office in New York? And he was like, I'm coming to New York on Sunday. Let's talk. He tweeted to me this. He didn't, it wasn't a DM. This was a tweet. So I was like, all right, I, I knew the brand. It's called rolling out. They were like the black, uh, um, or they are like the black Village Voice. They had, they had boxes in New York. They gave away free back in the day. Village Voice gave away free movie tickets. And so you had to come to Village Voice office and pick up the tickets rolling out. You just go to the, go to the box to Magic Johnson Theater and get the ticket. So I knew the brand came to New York. He was true to his word, gave me a contract right there on the spot. I started working for them. The first thing I did was cover the BMI awards which is the publishing industry awards for music and on the red carpet there was back in the day it was an app called QIK quick app and quick will let you stream directly to youtube and stream to twitter and so i had quick on my my iphone 3 i was online on the red carpet next to me was VH1 and on this side was BET they had the cameraman they had the lights they had the boom mic front so it was like four people i'm there with this little black iPhone and who comes up George Clinton so George Clinton with the you know with the beard and the the rubber bands and everything Bootsy with his big white hat on I'm like oh wow I'm gonna meet Bootsy Collins they come up to me and I'm on Twitter I'm on the I Love Black Women feed And they started talking to me and I'm saying, they said, what are you, where's your mic? I said, it's all right here in this phone. They're like, what is that? This is around the time when Oprah had just got on Twitter with Ashton Kutcher. So people weren't really, you know, celebrities weren't really understanding what Twitter was. I showed them and people were going crazy on my Twitter feed and they were saying all kinds of comments. They were saying, I love your music. They're like, oh man, what you, what is this Twitter thing? And so they stood with me. The chime goes off. BET never got the interview. They left VH1's interview because they were looking at me with the t-shirt, I Love Black Women t-shirt on, and I'm just a single guy standing there and all these media outlets. So they're trying to figure out their intrigue. intrigued. Like, th- he's just standing there by himself. Like, let- so they didn't finish the VH1 interview. So these two outlets were really mad at me because I had messed up. And I had the brand Rolling Out it was a known brand, but I didn't have any equipment. I never came with the cameraman. I just came with my phone. And that was it because my job at rolling out was to build their digital media outlet. Everybody at that point was, was physical paper or they were TV or they were radio. There was no digital media. So I went from New York opening up an office and I was the, at the first co-working space in New York was called Sunshine Suites in Tribeca around directly across street from Jay Z's house. So that was my wholesale to them. We need an office, and we need to be across the street from Jay-Z's house in Tribeca. They're like, what? And it's only $300 a month. like, no. Sunshine Suites. If you Google Sunshine Suites, the site is still up, I believe. It's defunct now. But they had an office there, co-working space, and they had an office in NoHo right across the street from NYU, whatever that NYU building is right there. And so what happened was they sent me to, they're based in Atlanta. They sent me to Chicago, Houston. And, uh, DC. And so I went from New York, DC, Chicago, Houston, opening up offices, training people how to use digital. After that, I left New York in 2016 and I ran to the March on Washington, 50th anniversary. I was a digital consultant for that. And then the American Federation of Teachers hired me to help get the vote out and teach older folks who were at union halls how to do Instagram when they voted in 2014. Around 2014, 2016, there was a lot of things around voting and Obama and all that stuff. So I got more uh, political savvy and more political contracts in that time. And actually, Robert Carnegie, who is a city council person, he was on my first campaign that I was a digital strategist for. And Rob, we won that campaign. And so I ran Rob Social for his campaign out of Best stuy But as that's happening in 2016, I moved to Atlanta. When I moved to Atlanta, a guy that I knew said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm trying to figure it out. Just hooked up with my fiance. And he's like, I want to have a program. I'm pitching to the White House. I want you to to run. I was like, okay, what is it? we are going to take 20 kids out the hood, put them in a place like Chelsea Market. That's right. So the Chelsea version of Chelsea Market in Atlanta is called Ponce City Market. It's on Ponce de Leon. And inside that building is Twitter, Google, MailChimp and we're going to make sure these these kids who don't have a college degree, they get trained in Java, and they get trained in something else, and we'll do job development, so they'll get a job in tech. I'm like, all right, cool, it sounds good, whatever. So we run the program. The White House does fund it. The city of Atlanta funds it, and we call the program Code Start. 100 kids applied, 20 we got in. We had a job developer We had Agile Trainer for the Agile system. You got $500 stipend every month. You moved into our apartments. After six months, you got $2,500 stipend. And you usually got an internship at a tech company. Uber came. Snap came. Home Depot. They interviewed at every major corporate company. Square. Square was there. Cabbage came. Like We had, in Atlanta, it's the headquarters of FinTech. So almost close to 60% of the world's transactions are done, financial transactions, are done in Atlanta. So we had them have access to all this. Out of the 20 kids, we had to kick out three for breaking the rules. Three left on their own. 14, out of the 14 that were left, eight became full-time programmers. We ended up having to teach them four languages. They learned Ruby, Python, Java front-end, and Java back-end. Out of that, eight, Two have developed two apps, not only Rome. They're app, part of the app development team, and both apps are a million dollar apps. So I'm really proud of the Code Start program, but it was a challenge dealing with kids who don't have a GED, don't have a college degree, not necessarily techies, but they wanted to learn. So that was an intensive year out of my life dealing with millennials who at that point were mad so that's half of this conversation was hillary clinton the other half was i need y'all to stop smoking weed that was like literally because it was 18 to 25 that was the age range it was hell man but they looked at me and the, the guy who started the program as you guys are successful because we started something that nobody else had thought of in the country and we got it funded by the white house and all of um, tech corporate america came out and supported going from there Company here in Philadelphia asked me to come up and to, I was already consulting for them. They said, We're starting a new website. We need you to run the website. And it's called uh, EcoWord. So I ran that for a year and the funding was only for a year. So I knew I had to transition to something. That's when I went for the journalism fellowship. But for me, to your your original question, it hasn't just been like a straight line or I knew I was going to do this and go here, but how I got the trip and the journey. Is freaking unbelievable. And at the same time, um, it's been one full of options. It's one that leads me into my wife is a psychic. She was number two in Atlanta and she's number uh, like 11 or 12 here in Philadelphia. But in that journey, my options are her options. And what I do on social media or uh, digital strategy or SEO, she's now learned herself. And I love watching her do stuff that I hadn't thought about, it's intuitive or it's instinctual to somebody that learns from somebody else to take it to the next level. And so for me, it's not just a journey of options, but it's a journey of being able to give and teach others and then see them out succeed you or out think you in stuff you never thought about doing. And it's like, well, you still are the OG. Your people you touch... They go far, and they they do their own thing, and it's like that's a great feeling.
0: That is, that is. So, this is a question, two parts. If someone wants to get into the tech world. What do you sort of recommend, at least getting their feet wet? Someone wants to get into journalism. What do you recommend? You know, without a college degree, what routes would you sort of suggest today?
1: It depends on what part of tech they want to do. Like, I think I think the question always is right. What do you want to do, and why do you want to do it? If it's website and it's web or if it's, uh you know, apps and on a phone, mobile and stuff like that, that's a different path. So you got to start where you want to be at. And then, excuse me, you really want to look at not look at these schools. You want to see what you can learn online first. So the first thing is, if you're trying to be a developer, would be go to Git, G-I-T, Hub, GitHub. And actually, uh, even though you're an adult and you don't know coding probably there are some game sites that teach you coding. That's one of the first things I would say is, even before GitHub, is go to a type in the word game, gaming, and learning code. There are free sites that will let you code a game. And as you learn to code the game, the if-then statements are the biggest thing in the world. And the value statements. Once you learn to code your own game, you're off and running. Now, the, the thing that these schools do not teach you and you have to do this. In writing, in journalism, in coding, in tech, not tech uh, hardware, but coding, is you have to build something every day. You have to write something every day. I don't care if it's a poem. I don't care. But in coding, you have to build a program. Build a program that teach you the, the, what's the weather going to be in Antarctica based on this year's weather. Build you know, just something small. The reason why you need to do that is because you have to stay current. You have to stay, your mind has to constantly be thinking. And employers, where we're we going with employee employers, is, I believe it's, I know it's Google, and I wanna say it's Twitter also are saying you don't need a degree. You need to, they want to see your get what's called a GitHub repository. G-I-T H-U-B is where programmers put their portfolio. Like artists put their pictures up. Programmers put their portfolio. If someone goes to your GitHub, they can tell you, tell how interesting your mind is. You may have a beautiful mind and they're trying to, they're trying to figure out this problem with, with, um, with virtual reality. All the virtual reality programmers think a certain way. They need to bring somebody else who's more analytical this way or more creative that way. And they can read your GitHub and say, you know what? He would make an interesting junior developer. He or she might make an interesting junior developer. And they can look at, they can tell that just from your GitHub. So I told my kids all the time, you cannot. The kids that we had in Cold Start, you can't call yourself a programmer if you don't program. Like I don't care what you did last week. I care what you did yesterday. But Mr. Pratt, uh, that's just the way it is, bro. You don't have a degree. The other people can say, I went to MIT, I went to Stanford, or I went to Georgia Tech, or I went to NY, uh, New Jersey IT, or I went to you know New, Jer- New York School of Technology. You don't have that. So what you do have is what you did and what you do, and how you do it. That's one. The only thing I would go to school for, probably, is if I was getting an advanced degree. I was trying to be something in science and go after a PhD. I would not start college for tech. I would start programming for tech. And then after programming, once you get your foot in the door as a junior developer, then you may see you wanted to run an apartment. So then you need an MBA, possibly, to run an apartment because you need you need to understand how administration works, and not necessarily from a college you know perspective, but just because the other people who want to give you the job they have MBAs too. So they only, that's the only thing you're getting MBA for. You're not getting a MBA to deal with people because you don't teach you in college how to how to how to deal with people unless you're doing a psych
0: course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, things are slowly changing, thankfully, especially in tech, because you know the best people in tech they just know. So it's like you want the best guy
1: in journalism. We have to write. Even if, if you keep a journal, literally, uh, of your feeling, the process of writing is difficult, meaning the process of not so much the sentence structure and the grammar. Let's talk about that. But being able to be honest. The problem we have today, I believe, in me- media is that, I don't know if you remember Keith Oberman. Remember Keith? He, he would go on these rants, 10-minute rants about Bush. He was on MSNBC, and he, he went to the sports network after MSNBC. But Keith Oberman would rant for 10 minutes. Kind of like John John Oliver does, or the daily show guy John Stewart did, but like Trevor feels more comedic comedic sometimes sometimes he did gets honest in his, his his feelings. he has a shield that's that's an interesting scenario. I think that foreigners or people not born in the u s have a shield that they don't necessarily have to drop to be accepted, whereas Americans we have to get they want to see your pain that's how writing is writing is sometimes a tool people use to deal with their trauma. The more you can identify what it takes for you to be honest and express your opinion, that's what gets people to continue to read your stuff. And so the process of doing that is the most important process. The next process, there's a term in journalism called early career. There's a lot of money. And I say a lot of money, maybe not you know in the next two years, but there's going to be enough money. But it used to be a lot of money for early career journalists. That's people who are just starting a career. You can get a grant. There are people that wanna help you. Newspapers, radio station, television they're always looking for somebody who has an interesting point of perspective. So the first thing is, what's your lane? What are you gonna be in? Are you gonna go after food? Are you gonna do food politics? Like my lanes are tech, politics, culture, and business. Those are my four things. I kind of I straddle. I don't go out. I don't do sports. Never me talk about sports. I don't do art. I mean, I I love art, but that's not. I don't. I don't have a point of reference. But I know my four lanes. So the person has to identify their lane and then write in those lanes or lane, and then go to meetup.com and start associating with people in that lane. Writers groups, writer circles. Just like hang out. And now is, you know, we're stuck at home. So it's mad easy to find a group to hang out with because people are looking to freaking, you know, once you do that, you'll start to see jobs. Once, if you're looking for grants for early career, you'll start to, you'll be in a circle around people who are sharing information and you'll see websites that say this and say that. That's probably the first start because everybody's going to want to see a writing sample. And then what you can also do is offer your samples. You know, you can cover a story. You can actually write about a story and offer that to your paper. And once you're published, that you're often, you're, you're now a journalist. I mean, not exactly, but for not having a degree, not going to, they call it J school, journalism school, not going to journalism school and to have, uh, let's say not the New York Times, let's say the Brooklyn Eagle, or let's say in smaller markets, unlike New York, you can write for a major paper because they, they're always looking for people and a lot of their papers are being bought by private equity firms who don't give a f about journalism but they only care about getting cheap writers. You know, the key to the game is being able to write for an established newspaper or an established brand. Why would they hire you? Why would it? Cuz their owners are looking for cheap, you know, labor. And so you get the benefit from the brand and the nonprofit world of funders want to fund the next generation of writers. So you're an established writer because you wrote for this, this newspaper. You qualify for this grant for 45000 or 25000 or whatever. And that usually sustains you for a year to do what you want. In that year, you have to really utilize that time, though. I strongly suggest you write a book. Whatever the book is, write a book. And I'm talking about have a book, spend money on on the cover design, spend money on editing, spend money on you know go to master class you know that that site, spend money on character development and really start to understand what your book is supposed to be about but write a book so so first thing is try to get your work published, journal yourself what's your voice how are you going to think how is the honesty coming through and then get a grant for early career uh, get published, get a grant for early career and write a book after that, it's hard to deal, you know. A guy sitting next to you has never. You get hired a newspaper or some some news outlet, and a guy sitting next to you has never written a book. A guy sitting next to you has never been a fellow, never got a grant. They went to journalism school, then they went to corporate American journalism. You got two things that this person sitting next to you has spent eight years or six years and has written two thousand articles. Doesn't have you beat them by two things? You wrote a book. Got it published, had book signings, and you got a grant.
0: Okay, thank you so for that phenomenal advice. I think a lot of listeners can really take that to heart. Thank you for sharing your story. How would someone get in contact with you? Sure,
1: it's real simple. L M J Pratt. So L M J Pratt. That's my Twitter name. You can find me on Facebook that way. L M J Pratt. You can find me on uh, Link. I don't think LinkedIn is that way. Oh, actually, it is that way too on LinkedIn. So you just but. Lawrence Martin Johnson Pratt or Martin Pratt those two names or just Google I Love Black Women, I L U V Black Women. I come up through all those
0: things. Okay, that's cool, man. That's cool. I mean, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I think your is phenomenal. It's an interesting story. I'm glad you know I got you on. Looking forward to keeping in touch and keep on moving.
1: I can't wait to interview you.
0: Okay, look, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> Whenever you're ready, I'm ready. Okay, sounds good, man. Have a good one. You too. Peace. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated, and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at no degree Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree, I-N-C. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect, or follow me on LinkedIn at Jenaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, nodegree.com. yeah so him.
1: you got no degree no problem no problem any problem we can solve we them. got linked insomnia keeps us evolving growing and knowing wisdom is flowing if you didn't know now you know where I'm going if you didn't you know, now like, you know. Let's sing that again, everybody. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn Somnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in the knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn Somnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in the knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. Yeah